0: Let's reach for our Bibles this morning, and we're going to go to the Book of 2 Corinthians together. All right, Second Corinthians. Uh, Pastor Jeff asked that we kind of stay close in the in the chapters that we've been working through. This helps keep continuity with the class, and it also it's uh, he's laid down an excellent excellent uh, background to us for for the Book of 2 Corinthians. One of the, I feel like I say this every time I open up a book of the Bible, that this is one of my favorite books of the Bible. Uh, curious how that always works out, but this is indeed one of Paul's most personal letters. You get a real uh, fix on his heart as he speaks very personally, very directly, uh, very um, transparently with the church at Corinth. As you already know, I'm sure the, the relationship Paul had with Corinth was quite complicated. Um, if You read the book of Acts, specifically in Acts chapter 18. Paul had arrived in Corinth and had given his, uh, had started to go there as a tent maker, found this man, Aquila and Priscilla, and their the husband and wife team. And they were tent makers, so they, since they shared the same trade, they lived together. And uh, he was weekly on the Sabbath day in the synagogue trying to persuade and trying to reason with the Jews and Gentiles there. And uh, seeking their salvation, giving them the gospel, and as a result of that, uh, in the synagogue, one of the, the synagogue leader, um, I think his name was Crispus, came to faith and trusted Christ and became a, a Christian. Well, this set the the Jewish community on fire. Basically, they were un, they were upset about this. They brought uh, charges against Paul that he didn't worship according to the, uh, to the gods of their culture or that they, he preached a different a different message from the from the Bible from the Old Testament and uh, basically brought him before um, Gallio remember Gallio Gallio is the uh, guy who would say you know let's just hold up and see if this is of, of God if it's of God you can't stop this. Uh, But Galileo was sitting there and basically didn't want to hear anything that they had to say. None of the accusations they had against Paul. They were not interested in, he was not interested in entertaining those things. So he eventually drove them all away from the judgment seat there. And it's interesting, that whole story in the background, but Paul was there with them for 18 months. And daily with them in the house there nearby of the synagogue. And the Lord had promised him that he had many, many people in the city. And the Lord used him to preach the gospel, and a church was formed in Corinth. After that time, after he left, you know that uh, teachers had come in after Paul had left and began to create problems because they sought to be preeminent in the congregation, they began to disparage Paul's ministry. In fact, Paul was probably... Uh, every, every aspect of Paul's life, his personality, his ministry, everything was brought under review and scrutiny and criticism. And I mean, these teachers were basically uh, maiming his influence, basically making him out to be all about himself. He was, a, he was an untrustworthy teacher. He was an apostle who, who, who claimed too much authority for himself and a whole host of other things that were unfair criticisms to him. And now he's in a position where he's, he has friends and dear saints who he loves, some of them who he led to the Lord there in Corinth, and they're standing in doubt of him now. And so now he's got to write this very delicate letter to them that forces him to have to defend his apostolic ministry without sounding proud and sounding like he's entitled to their loyalty. <laughs> so you have to understand that there's a lot of things in this letter where Paul's trying not to be defensive, and yet he knows it's for their benefit that they listen to him and they hear the word of God from him. So as, as we're in chapter five, he's going to get really intensely personal with them. And I, I think it's very—it's a very intriguing passage of scripture because chapter five tells us, shows us how we ought to respond to personal attacks against our integrity. When someone lays an accusation against you that's unfair or unjust, perhaps, or makes a critique of your motives or puts you in a a bad light of some kind, how are we prone to respond to that? So Paul's reputation here as we enter chapter 5 is one that's being slandered by a minority of these influential teachers that had risen in the church since he'd last been with them. Paul's motivations for his ministry have been attacked, maligned, speculated upon. These super apostles have risen up. Who are now shaking the confidence of the church and Paul's role, ministry, teaching, and mission? And worse than that, such attacks upon the apostles' ministry were actually hindering the work; they were sabotaging the work of God there at Corinth. And Paul is reluctant to make a make himself the center of controversy. He didn't want to become. He didn't want to turn his ministry of the gospel into a PR campaign to protect his own reputation. Um, so now he's in a situation where now he's trying to avoid self defense but also knowing that defending himself is needful because the integrity of the gospel that he preaches is, that, is, is under attack. So there's a couple of things that they were attacking him on. They said his sufferings were so many and so intense that they thought that there's no way this man can suffer this much and be a true apostle. Uh, they had sort of an idea that uh, if, you're, if you're approved of God, if you're given this great gift of God as an a- a- apostle, you shouldn't be suffering they were weak in their suffering theology. They didn't understand that uh, suffering was a tool that God's using uh, throughout, the, throughout the life of a Christian. They said his teaching was always inevitably controversial. He's always a, a lightning rod for controversy. His presence was weak. He said his in person, he just does not exude a lot of inspiring energy, okay? He's not a He's not one of these great pulpiteers, perhaps. He's not like Apollos, who we've been listening to now and have been had the privilege of hearing all these great ph- philosophical and articulate orators. His speech was contemptible. He vacillated in his extremes and his personality and his travel plans. He couldn't even get his travel plans together. He said he was coming, then he wasn't. And uh, they found fault with these types of things. Uh, he claims an unrightful authority. as an apostle. They went so far to say that he is so strange and so erratic that he's out of his mind. I mean, they're actually, they're actually alleging he's not even mentally stable anymore. I mean, can you imagine how hurtful this is to the apostle, where he's thinking, I've given you my heart. I, I've, been, I've, I've desired to that nothing more than for your spiritual benefit and blessing. And, and this is the accusations that are being brought. They said he's proud, he makes too much of himself. So all of these things get back to the apostle. Now he's in the position where he's got to answer some of these things, but he knows that the the great dilemma is that by defending himself, he would be misperceived as one who's proud, which is exactly fits the narrative of what what these false teachers, these elites, were saying about him. They're saying he's proud, he's self-serving, he's insecure, he's fearing that he'll lose his influence among the Corinthians in the church. So now his beloved friends are somewhat in doubt of him. And so, uh, my question starts to think about, uh what, what do you guys think about that? Have you ever had accusations that were unfairly placed against you? Someone who misperceived what you were, your motivations were all about? Um, Perhaps someone who thought that you were thinking one direction, they had assumed that they knew what you were thinking, and challenged your integrity? Um how did you respond in that situation? What was your initial impulse to want to do? Maybe that's too, maybe, maybe what have you observed? Maybe I don't want to get too personal with you as it has to do with something specific to you, but what is our natural human response in those situations? Defending. Defending ourselves. Okay. And how does that usually go when we defend ourselves? I mean, what, what, What's difficult in the challenge of that? When we have to defend ourselves, something something comes about that's very challenging. Oftentimes, it increases tensions. It can increase tensions for sure. Yeah. What about what's going on in your heart while you're feeling like the pressure to to fix this, this misunderstanding? A lot of tension, a lot of fear, perhaps a lot of just unbelief about what they, what are they thinking? How in the world could they come to such a conclusion? You begin to think that they're off, you know. They're just you, the relationship starts to get really difficult to carry forward. You start to avoid one another, perhaps. I mean, there's a lot of tensions that go into this. So um, when you think about this, that's all Paul's trying to save a relationship, trying to to restore a relationship that's made more difficult by the fact he's writing a letter, and not face to face to them. And he said, I want to be face-to-face with you. I, I, I promised myself I wouldn't come face-to-face to you and make you sorry. <laughs> I, want you to, I want to come to you and, and, have a, uh, and have it be joyful. And he says that later on in the, in the chapters here. What you're about to witness in this text is uh, a demonstration of the supernatural control of a man under the arresting power of the Holy Spirit when he's unfairly attacked. You need to be prepared to see stunning examples of self-denial, and divine love and action towards difficult people. You will note that every word and action is constrained by a love of Christ for difficult people. And the fear of the Lord, which motivates him to please the Lord in anticipation of the judgment seat of Christ. If we're in chapter 5, I want you to have a look here at verses 11 through 15 in just a moment. Let me just set up this for a minute. Such convictions that you'll see here are I'm afraid to say are rarely seen in a believer when he comes into conflict because these actions that Paul's going to display are not produced naturally they don't come arise from your natural fleshly impulses they defy the natural impulses of your flesh the supernatural grace of God on display in Paul's response (coughs) reveals that he has died to the need for vindication he does not need human validation for his ministry he does not have to have personal justice. He does have a powerful drive for self-justification. This is not his reaction, which is, would be our natural one. What we observe here is a spirit-wrought response of a man who's absolutely owned these four essential convictions that govern his heart and mind during times when he's unjustly <laughs> criticized. And I think there's something here for us to learn. In chapter 5, you remember verse 10. Jeff left us here with verse 10. He spoke of uh, Paul's mention of the judgment seat. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done and whether good or bad. So we were recalled to remember that someday we'll stand before the great judgment seat of Christ to see whether the fruit produced of our lives, the, the things that came out as a result of our of our walk of faith were in keeping or in alignment or in in congruence with our profession? Did we live out our lives in in alignment with our our profession of faith and uh, is a, this is looming in the mind of Paul while he's talking to us. In the next verse, he hasn't broken into a new subject area yet. He's still talking about the, this great judgment seat, and he calls it the fear of the Lord. He says here in verse 11, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in the appearance And not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So, this passage is probably one of the more difficult ones to interpret in the, in, the, in the book, but I want us to walk through this and see four convictions of how to respond to personal criticism. We're running out of time quickly, so I'm going to move right into that. Um, here's our four convictions. I want you to notice four things Paul kind of camps on here that help guide his thinking as he interacts with people who are not likely to believe him. <laughs> He's not going to engage in a, in a self-defense. He's going to engage in a, what I'm going to call a selfless defense. And that's important. We're going to point out marks of that in a minute. He's more concerned with Christ's judgment than men's judgment, first of all. That's guiding his whole thinking here. Second of all, he's committed to a selfless defense. Third, he's calm, collected mentally and spiritually and emotionally. And then he's controlled by Christ's love. And he's going to point these four things out to you, to you as, as reminders for you when you come into these situations. Okay, number one. Let's go ahead and start right in here. Be concerned with Christ's judgment more than men's judgment. Notice he says here, having, uh, knowing the fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord is to have not a morbid terror and craven fear of God that uh, he's just going to annihilate you. Okay, that's not what's meant here. He's, the, the fear of the Lord that he's speaking of is a deep reverential awe and respect that results in worship, adoration, and service. In his life, he thinks entirely about how this might relate to his, his conduct before God, who's watching his, his ministry, who's guiding it, and his whole desire is to aim to please the Lord. Um, So the fear of the Lord is what produces this personal integrity. Now, when accusations come, and if your life doesn't match up with what you've preached, and and accusations come, this is a cause for for great fear and great trepidation. When your personal integrity isn't in line, then yes, then you would have a fear of man. You'd have a fear of being exposed and a fear of being found out and, uh, you know, Uh, these types of things. But this is not what's guiding Paul in this response. He knows his integrity is intact. His life and ministry has been on display for them from a long time ago, from the time he walked into Corinth and spent that time with him. So this fear of the Lord is producing a personal integrity. This judgment seat of Christ that he spoke of has loomed large in his mind. It's induced an appropriate fear and respect, and it would be, the day, that judgment seat is the day in which all the labors of his life would be tested by fire. He's already written to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 about that, and told them that the foundation has been laid by Christ, and now it's upon us to build upon that foundation, and the quality materials that we would use to build upon that foundation are determinative of whether they last, and whether whether they are uh, pleasing and and permanent for the Lord. And so he talks about, already told them about this, and he he reminds us here that we all have to appear before this Bema seat. Just like he, when he was there with him, had to stand before Gallio on, on the Bema Toss. It's, Acts says that he was standing before the judgment seat there in Corinth. And all the accusations are coming at him from all quarters. And Gallio, who had the power to really make Paul's life miserable, decided, I'm not going to hear it. And he ran them off from the judgment seat. He scattered them. I think this is the event that's kind of in the, in the back. Background of what he's talking about. The Corinthians saw God exonerate Paul before the, the human judgment seat. And now he's saying, we all will stand before a judgment seat, the Lord's judgment seat. Whether And we'll have to give an account for what we accomplish in this life, whether it's good or bad. Now this knowledge of that our lives are going to be evaluated by Christ and tested to see what quality of what was produced is fearsome. It fearsome thing for sure. But this fear is a good thing. It's a good thing because it purges us from hypocrisy. It compels us to live lives of integrity. Our lives are through and through consistently and lived, as the reformers would say, "Coram dio, before the face of God. Okay, So that's what he goes on to say. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. (coughs) The fear of the Lord persuades men of truth. And uh, the fear of the Lord compels us to seek this favorable response from men. Not with the eloquent words and enticing words or scintillating intelligence or with impressive philosophical arguments, as was the case in other eloquent teachers of his day. But as he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says we live our lives so that our words are a coherent composite of the truth that we preach. We don't preach something and live an entirely different message. It's completely coherent. We persuade men by both words and and by a life that's radically changed by Christ, and Paul says, "Knowing the fear of the Lord, we're persuading men." He's not talking necessarily about the. It's not necessarily an evangelistic verse in this passage because he's not necessarily trying to persuade them of the gospel. He's persuading them of the integrity of his life. It's like, "We, you know, the fear of the Lord that I have, and I seek to seek to persuade you." to the integrity that I have. For 18 months Paul had lived among the Corinthians, persuading both Jews and Gentiles of the gospel. They had seen his life even when the Jews resisted him and he left the synagogue. They saw him preach this gospel despite persecution, despite resistance, did not change his message. And the Lord exonerated him before Galileo on the Bimatas there in Corinth. So the Lord will exonerate him before the judgment seat of Christ is the presumed I think, conclusion here. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord also promises integrity before God. He says that in chapter five, verse 11, he says, he says, um, but we are made manifest to God. So he's, he's, his whole approach here is that he's not concerned with living a life of integrity just before them, but before God himself. If you, don't, if you live your life with integrity before God, you don't have to worry about the judgments of men. Proverbs 16.7 says that when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And so the concern, the driving motivation, Paul's giving an insight into his heart, is not so that they would be pleased with him. It's so that the Lord would be pleased with him. And the fear of the Lord pacifies this innate desire for validation before men. He's not eager that they would put some respect on his name. (laughs) He's not looking for that. He's looking that his ways would please the Lord and that he has this gentle approach with these people. He does not guilt them for not having better, better judgment. He does not attack them for their disloyalty. Notice his gentleness towards the saints at Corinth. He says, and I hope that we are made manifest in your consciences. It's very gentle. It's very pastoral here. Paul's gentleness towards the saints at Corinth. He's not outraged that they were entertaining criticisms and lies from the false teachers. He's not anxious. He's not flabbergasted. He doesn't say have you forgotten everything I did for you? You ungrateful people. He's not thinking that way. Didn't you see how the Lord vindicated me in front of the judgment seat with Gallo? You'd better put some respect on my name. He didn't say that. He's very gentle. I hope it will be manifest in your consciences. And he's not even seeking public exoneration. What mattered was that the same that these saints in Corinth would exonerate Paul in their consciences, that they would look back and think back to the relationship that they had with him while he was there among them and say, appeals to their conscience, that they would find Paul not guilty on all these charges. You know, whenever rumors sweep through, it's easy to grow fretted and despairing that the lies are going to be believed, that there's little that you can do to keep these rumors from... From spreading, you can grow fearful. Have you ever had? Have you ever been the subject of an ugly rumor? Yeah. And you sit there, and you can worry about who's hearing this, who's believing this, who's, what, I'm, who's going to give me an opportunity to speak for myself, and you have all these fears that just rush in. And that doesn't seem to be Paul's approach here. He says that I trust your conscience will come to a fair conclusion based on our relationship. Based on what you know of me, what you observed of me yourself. In fact, Peter would say this. Peter says, You know how you put to silence the ignorance of foolish men? <laughs> how do you how do you silence your critics? How do you silence rumors? It isn't by going on a on a campaign, a personal crusade, to make sure your reputation's clear and getting every taking every opportunity to announce your your personal integrity. Oh, Peter says he says this such is the will of God that by doing right. Just do right. You will put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, in times when we are attacked and our reputations are sullied we are, and we're out of favor with man, we fall on these scriptures that tell us that we silence our critics by steady, faithful obedience to God. Continue to do the faithful things, the, the things that we are to do, the obedience, the, the regular routines of our Christian life and leave our reputation in the hands of God for him to, to correct so we see Paul is committed here to a selfless defense, a selfless defense. Now I say we've, we've learned about self defense. We hear about that all the time, but Paul's reluctant to do self defense because he knows himself better than probably anyone else knows. And and you know, we are we are <laughs> depraved. That uh, I, I put a quote up there from Spurgeon before that uh, I didn't get to read it to you earlier. But it was something to the effect of, listen, don't ever find fault with a man who finds fault with you, because if he knew you just a little bit better, he would just change his accusation and he would be no closer, he would be no further from the truth. That you are actually, he needs just a few, he says, he just needs a few darker touches to be closer to the truth. Faults abound in our lives, and a humble saint realizes that. We don't thump our chest and, and champion our, our self-righteousness we know that we're depraved so he's reluctant to defend himself So he, but he has to and he's motivated from what I call a selfless defense his interest is not to exonerate himself his interest is to first of all glorify God honor Christ and to continue to bless and nourish these Christian saints to minister to them so he's focused on God and others. He's not focused on himself here. A selfless defense does not fear questions about your integrity because they're more concerned with the integrity before God than protecting your indiscretions. A selfless, um, selfless defense does not always attribute sinful motives to people who, who question your integrity, who are raising concerns, but instead they recognize God may be using critics to humble you and to show the sufficiency of his grace. Paul says later on in chapter 12, that there is a messenger from Satan come to buffet him. A thorn in his flesh. He's like, he talks about, uh, I think he's referring to there, I think he's referring to these, these false teachers who are shredding his credibility. And he's asked the Lord three times to remove them, and he hasn't removed them. These are messengers of Satan. And the pain is horrendous. It's like tearing your flesh. And he says, the Lord says, no, I wanted to show you that In your weakness, I'm strong. The sufficiency of my grace is is there for you. And uh, I'll leave that to to be taught later. But uh, that's an example of what's going on here. Paul says, no, I'm not going to resent your criticisms because they're God's tools and, and usefulness in my life to show grace and show the sufficiency of his grace. A selfless defense, trust the conscience of others those who are the Lord's have a spirit-informed conscience. If, you believe in, if you're a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit resides within, and he is operative in the conscience of the believer. A self, a, a someone who has a spirit-informed conscience will see the truth. If they're seeking for it, they will find it. And so you don't need to be so aggressive to, to defend your own honor. A selfless defense does not assume that you can prove in a moment what can only be proven over the course of time in a relationship. And Paul just reverts back to that year and a half that he had spent with them. He says, You remember when I was with you? You saw my life. You saw my love for you. There's no there's no question there. So a selfless defence is interested a selfless defence is interested in the needs of others. That's why he says in five twelve, he says, I'm gonna give you an opportunity, to give you an occasion to be proud of us. I want to give you an occasion to be proud of us. He's going to give the opportunities for them to, to think through the claims of these false teachers. A selfless defense does not demand an immediately favorable verdict for himself. He's not saying, listen, guys, time to choose a side. Are you on my side or theirs? You know? He's not pushing. He's, he's saying, I want to give you an opportunity to think this through. Okay? He's not demanding a favorable verdict on the count of their loyalty. Show your loyalty. Are you on my side or not? He's not like that. He's, it's very gentle here. A selfless defense submits opportunities like the time needed to think through and come to a conclusion, to give them space and answers for someone to come to a conclusion. A selfless defense seeks what is best for the other person. This is, this is not the natural impulse, is it, for us? This is this is obviously the spirit is working in Paul's response. A selfless defense, trust the truth will ultimately prevail. He says, in the end of verse fifteen here, or sorry, not fifteen, pardon me, verse uh, twelve. Says we're giving you occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. So there's a. A gentle way of saying, "Listen, there are those who are proud, just in appearance, not in heart." And you may be—it's sort of a—it's sort of a, an allusion to these teachers who are there among them. These people take pride in their appearance, but they are not sincere. They're not genuinely interested in your in your best spiritual interests. They're interested in accumulating power and prestige and preeminence in your midst. They have they have pride in their appearance, not in heart. So he says, "I want your consciences to do the work." So a selfless defense believes that those who want to see the truth can penetrate superficiality. Those who are in Christ can look through things and see things that aren't manifestly superficial on the surface. Okay? They can see the heart and reality. A selfless defense rests its case in the providence of God in the clearing of questions surrounding your integrity. Do you trust the Lord to clear the case against you? That's where you ultimately land You can't do anything to change the situation, and so you throw yourself on the providence of God. Difficult to do, but nonetheless, it's the only safe place to land. So, a selfless defense. We've looked at a couple of these things. Um, We see two of the convictions. Be concerned with God's Christ judgment rather than men's. Be committed to a selfless defense. Thirdly, be calm and mentally collected and emotionally collected. Now, this next verse is notably a very difficult one to understand, but we're going to look at this. It says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, he says. If we are of a sound mind, it's for you. You know, I go back to one of the accusations that the people at Corinth were saying about Paul is they saying he's just out of his mind. He's putting himself in obviously dangerous situations, risking his health, risking his uh, life unneedlessly. Uh, I mean, are we sure this man hasn't come unhinged? I mean, this is the accusations they're making against Paul. And Paul says, you know what? If I'm out of my mind, it's for God. If, I have, if, if you have to question my sanity, it's because I'm so powerfully driven by the truth and the gospel and its need to go forward, I'm willing to put myself in hazardous situations, to hazard health and, and safety, if necessary. And, and I might appear to be uh, out of control, out of my mind. The word there means out of my mind. Uh, I may appear to be that way, but just know that when I do that it 's because of God, what God has done in his life the rest- the rescue of his salvation, the change of his life, the transformation the- pa- the hope of this gospel it compels me to do things that cause me to deny myself, not think of myself so he 's saying uh, he 's saying but if i 'm a sound mind it 's for you and i 'm going to say basically I- how I understand this is that Paul's saying, if there's any accusations about me being unreasonable or insane or <laughs> irrational in my zeal towards God, let those descriptions be about my disposition towards God, not my disposition, disposition towards those who question my integrity. We maintain a sound mind towards those who stand in doubt of us. We don't look at the person across from us who's raising these questions about our integrity and say, are you insane? <laughs> are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? And Paul did not act out of his mind with those who challenged him, okay? He was a sound mind. He was in control of himself. He was calm. He was collected, okay? Don't defend your honor with more passion than you defend God's honor, okay? One of the things that, um, did I put that here somewhere? Yes. When a message I heard from John MacArthur one time said this, Paul didn't preach at them about him the way he preached to them about God. I love that statement. He didn't preach to them about him in the same way he preached to them about God. He kept that distinct. Okay? He didn't want them to get confused that he was mixing the two. Okay? Next, we see here a selfless defense, trust that truth will ultimately prevail. Wait, I already did that, didn't I? Pardon me. It's better to be thought to be beside yourself or insane over things pertaining to God than to be thought that you're imbalanced about matters pertaining to your own reputation. Do you get more exercised over defending your own honor than you do about defending Christ's glory and honor? That really reveals a lot about our hearts. Okay, so there's be calm. That's what Paul's saying. I'm calm towards you. I'm sober-minded towards you. I'm not insane. Okay, rest assured. My desire to you is to be fully calm and controlled here. And then fourthly, you want to answer the question about well, what's controlling you, Paul? Well, let me just tell you right now, what's controlling me is this a massive realization of Christ's love for us. For the love of Christ controls us, he says verse fourteen. What is this love of Christ? Some there's a question about whether this means Paul's love for for Christ that he has for the believers, that's Paul's own love that He is exhibiting to the believers here or is this Christ's love for Paul the language seemingly could go both ways but I think contextually we see here that Paul's talking about this love that Christ has for him this transforming love that Christ has shown to him is what actually compels him and constrains him and and causes him to conduct himself carefully there's a, doctr- a massive doctrinal foundation here that maybe we'll get into next week, and he says this in the end of verse 15 uh, 14. He says, "For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf." A couple of things he notices here. he says, "I've concluded something about this love for Christ." And it's a very, very rational conclusion. He says, number one, one died for all. There's no question about the interpretation of that statement, is there? Who is it that died for all? But who's the one? Christ, right? Christ died for all. Now there is some question about the word all. Are we talking about all as in every single human being who's ever populated this planet? Is that what's in the mind of Paul as he writes this? That Christ died universally for all, in some saving way, in some saint, in some some kind of atoning way, and the answer would be: Well, this next statement would say would kind of give clarity as to who the all is. He says, "Therefore, all died." Now, there might when Christ died on the cross, all died. This, that's what Paul's saying here. Who is the all who died in Christ? In That's right. Those whom Christ saved or those whom Christ has chosen from the foundation of the earth were the all. All of those were in Christ, died in Christ. Now, when we talk about this, uh, the idea of atonement here, we're not talking about this blanket, generic, in, impersonal atonement. We're talking about a very personal, particular, individual atonement. When Christ died, you were joined with him in his death uniquely okay when he died you also died a death we believe that as christians that's that's the substitutionary atonement of christ and that all were placed in him and in his death we also died and he goes on to say verse 15 he says that we all died um verse 15a he says um and he died for all he says it again so that they who live who are they who live yeah, those who trust Christ by faith come to saving faith in Him, putting their repentance and trust in Christ. Those are the ones who live. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. The the purpose the life that you now live has an entirely different aim, a different purpose, a different a whole different aspiration, I guess I could say. You're not living for yourself you're he says go on, He's going to say but for him who died and rose again on their behalf if this sounds like an echo of a different maybe you've heard of maybe you remember this Galatians 220 this is Galatians 220 to the Corinthians okay for I am crucified with Christ therefore it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives within me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God okay who gave himself for me and loved me and gave himself for me Paul is saying this very truth is that we no longer have a right to, honor, to to defend our own honor. We don't live our lives in the pursuit of our own comforts and our own, and our own uh, comforts. Okay? We live our lives in pursuit of the service and pouring our lives out to Christ. Okay? So he was controlled by, this, by Christ's love for him. Christ's love for him had, had caused him to die to self. He was no longer living for self. Instead, he's living in pursuit of service to the honor and glory of Christ. Now, these things are all very practical in their application when it comes to someone who attacks your honor and your integrity because it reveals whether or not you've you've grasped your new purpose in life is not to live for yourself, it's rather to live for Christ. Are they disparaging you and that bothers you more than the disparagement of Christ or dishonor of Christ? then it might reveal that you have forgotten that this is the purpose for why you've died. You've died in Christ, now you live, no longer for yourself, for him, but for him instead. Now this is a continuing thought, he'll carry you forward next week, we'll get to that. But uh, these are four convictions you must have in your heart that govern your thinking and your rationalization as people would attack you and personally and malign you. It will happen if it hasn't happened already as Christians. We I think we're staging for a new time in this country where that will happen more and more frequently, and your response cannot be a fleshly one. Let this that these convictions guide your thinking, and your and your approach to these things, to the, the the unfair criticisms. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this passage. What an insightful thing to see in the heart of Paul. I pray that you'd help us to not be so self-consumed, uh, to not, not be so wrapped up about what the fear of man might say and whether they're honoring us or whether they give us any credibility or whether they think we're that they think we're sane or in our own or in control of our own faculties Lord but rather we would be more concerned about whether Christ is honored whether the judgment seat will be a good experience for us as we give account for the things done in this body Lord, I pray that those things will loom large in our hearts and minds, and that the fear of man, men will be put in their space, in their place, is smaller and in uh, in relation to God, who should be the dominant and controlling um, thought of our hearts and minds. Lord, help us with this. This is a spiritual thing. We need the Holy Spirit of God to help us come to these conclusions and to live in alignment with them. We know you... We know you give aid to those who ask for it in this regard, so we ask for it this morning. And we pray that you bless us as we go now and worship together in a worship service to follow. Pray that you open our hearts and minds to receive the truths there for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.